Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. One thing the record will show about Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel, he was enthusiastically and uh, enthusiastic and promoted Chicago as a global city. And we're going to have a conversation about the benefits and challenges of being a global city. We'll think through how future leaders might differ in their approach to Chicago as a global city. We'll start with Mayor Emanuel, who keeps an array of statistics about Chicago as a global city at his fingertips. He spoke with WBEZ's political reporter, Becky Vivi, about nurturing some of the city's recent accomplishments. I'm hoping my, pre- I'm gonna, my, hoping my pre- predecessor, does not, or successor rather, does not eliminate the architectural biennial. It brings people from all over the world culturally to this city in a place that it shines globally. It's a great way to show the city. Uh, but here's what I would say. Great, Chicago's a great world-class city, and it's unique on a couple of levels. We are the only internal city that's a global city. You think of New York, it's on the coast. You think of Los Angeles, on the coast. Name me another global, world-class city inter- inside the 48. Doesn't exist. Why? <clears throat> yes, the aviation system transportation system. We have more universities than any other city in the United States but Boston. And we have more cultural institutions than almost any other city except for New York. Like 280 of them. From museums to libraries to theaters to music venues. And then when you... And we have the most diversified economy and the most... And second most competitive in North America... And depending on listing, ninth, eighth, or seventh worldwide. And when you combine the intellectual, cultural, and economic powerhouse, that's what makes Chicago a global city. But probably the fourth I should add to that is we have people from all continents. 140 languages spoken in our public schools. I know that. And so, I know you know that because I repeat it all the time. Uh, you knew it before. I knew before I, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's true because you studied education. But so, that makes Chicago unique. And if you think about it, I've studied this. So, A.T. Kearney, economist, IBM, always come up with a global listing. 100 most competitive global economies. Chicago is, with New York, is the only... New York and Chicago are always in the top 10 worldwide. We're number two... Globe, uh, in North America, nine, eight, or seven worldwide. But here's what's interesting. Of the top 10, Chicago is the only one on the top 10 list of the top 100 that is not that country's financial or political capital. So London is on it. You got Westminster, you know, et cetera. Berlin's on it. You got the Reichstag there, and you've got, obviously, financial. Tokyo's on it. Now, why is Chicago... That is not, thank God we don't have either Washington, D.C. or Wall Street. But it is one of the top ten worldwide. It's the only one that is not the financial or political capital, yet is seen as one of the most competitive economies in the globe. And to me, that's an amazing story about Chicago. And it's a very special thing we have. And we've got to keep nurturing it. And so understanding our cultural, our academic and our economic, and our transportation, and then ultimately our people, create Chicago's global presence. 
That's Chicago's Mayor Rahm Emanuel. And let's talk about what kind of future Chicago has as a global city. With me is Juliana Kerr. She's director of the Global Cities and Immigration portion of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Nice to see you, Juliana. Hi. And Juliana uh, helped launch the Chicago Council's uh, Chicago Forum on Global Cities. And they've got a new report out, uh, Chicago's Global Strategy. And um, it's a great big thick report they've been working on for three years. Also on the line with us is Carrie Leiderson, co-director of the Chicago Social or the Social Justice News Nexus, a fellowship program at Medill at Northwestern University, and Carrie's the author of Mayor One Percent and the Rise of Chicago's Ninety Nine Percent. Thanks for joining us, Carrie Leiderson. Yeah, thank you, um, Julian. I wanted to ask you first about the kind of skill set that mayors have about uh, these days. And, you know, Rahm Emanuel comes in with all these statistics and he's got these ideas and he's uh, almost like some sort of ambassador for a city cutting deals, wheeling, dealing. Uh, He was in Asia recently with the dozens of business leaders. And uh, this is part of the portfolio of what it means to be a mayor these days. Most people think it's a little more down to earth or it feels like uh, it's down to earth sometimes. But there's some kind of big thing that goes on out there. Yeah, absolutely. The The world has definitely changed. Uh, 2008 was kind of the, the big moment that uh, the United Nations had published. You know, the, most of the world's population is now living in cities rather than in rural areas. And so this focus on cities and governing cities is changing. And this has been our research agenda at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Um, mayors today of the major global cities, and there's there's really only about a hundred or so that are really these these global capitals of the world that are changing our understanding of the global economy, of social uh, and and political policies. Um, they're changing the course of history in many ways, and so they're they're more than mayors of. Uh, just their jurisdiction, but they're, like you said, an ambassador. They're the representative. They're uh, engaging on a global stage in ways that they hadn't been asked to or been called upon in maybe decades before this. Um, when I think of, you know, Mayor Emanuel and, and other mayors, his peers, you know, it's really, it's that vision, it's a leadership determination and thinking long-term, thinking about the big, bold projects, the kind of the Daniel Burnham vision for the city of where do they want to be 100 years from now, not just tomorrow. And uh, we've put together a, a variety of different talking points, you know, and, and kind of the issues from infrastructure to sustainability and inclusive growth, but we can get into that. And Carrie Leiterson, what do you think about um, the skill set that mayors have and that Rahm Emanuel brought to the job that the next uh, candidate might want to have. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, part of it is just defining global cities. And I think one of the things that characterizes the big global cities we're talking about is um, really innovative and amazing infrastructure and obviously trade and cultural capital and places where Chicago has been amazing and and Rom has obviously brought a lot to the city. But, you know, these cities all tend to have also vast disparities of wealth. A lot of the other global cities more than Chicago, but that's obviously been one of the characteristics of Chicago for a while, and people feel like it's um, gotten worse in a lot of ways during Rahm's tenure, and that even as he's really promoted the city as a, a global center for trade and culture and um, business, that people, the, the 
immigrants who, you know, actually make up, who speak those 140 languages, a lot of the, the working class immigrants, and then just the um, native born, you know, regular local Chicagoans don't really have access to all the things that make Chicago an exciting global city. So, you know, I think the challenge, I think it's um, in terms of mayor skill sets in general, the idea that mayors from all around the world are discussing, and I know the council's done a lot of exciting work on this front, the idea that mayors are discussing how to address their violence and healthcare access and equity and infrastructure um, that works for everyone, you know, and, and they're sharing ideas from Medellin and Mumbai and Chicago. I mean, that's really exciting. And I know that Ram has been involved in those conversations, but I feel like people don't see whatever he's learning in those conversations. They, do, they don't see it playing out on the ground and really making things better or giving, you know, equal access to these global um, amenities in Chicago. So, you know, I would hope that that would be something that the new mayor will be really strong on. We'll want to take a few phone calls on this topic. If you have some thoughts about Chicago as a global city, get, here's the number, 312-923-9239. 312-923-9239. Um, what, what do you think about some of the challenges? Because the optics can look, you know, kind of bad on, uh, you know, where I'm going after corporate clients. I'm doing all these things for corporate people. And instead, um, you know, you got healthcare, education, all these things that, uh, that, that are kind of the regular mayoral topics. And um, it seems like that is where... Mayor Emanuel had a had a more difficult time. He he kind of seems better at the global cities thing, and maybe not as good as the on the down to earth stuff. Well, I think uh, that you know to to be able to pay for all these services that we want to invest in and we need to invest in for the residents, um, you need that economic vitality, and that's where the focus on bringing in investments, tapping into those global markets, uh, is so important. Because if you don't have that, you can you can really drop out of a race that makes it a poorer place for everyone. Um, the global city that you know when we define global cities and we look at the the research, it's not about choosing you know local problems and fixing those or engaging and expanding your global reach. It's not about either or. It's about figuring out that virtuous circle so that you can um, invest locally and and have the strengths and the assets that you need so that you're better positioned to tap global markets and attract the tourism and attract those investments, but also then to use those new resources and reinvest in the institutions that you need to do here locally that serves everyone. Uh, Carrie, how do you feel uh, if we... If are we at a point we don't seem to have the virtuous circle necessarily i mean it it seems like the um the people who have done well do well but uh you know inequality is real everywhere yeah, it certainly seems that way. And um, I think that's, you know, people um, have gotten the feeling even more so that it's that way with with Ram as opposed to in the past. And, you know, you look at before global cities were even so much a concept when there were so many good union jobs and good middle class jobs in Chicago and, you know, in the Midwest as a regional capital. Um, I mean, a lot of people would still like to go back to those days and a lot of the new, you know, economically in terms of economic well-being 
upbringing and and um, less disparity in wealth. So you know, it, it it seems like there could be this virtuous circle. I think it, we're certainly not there now. And how much power a mayor has to make that happen? Um, I know it's a complicated thing, but um, when Rom goes to Asia with all these top donors, you know, it doesn't. It just furthers the. And I'm I'm sure that at least I hope that will have ripple effects for people across the spectrum in Chicago, but it also just furthers the appearance that it's about buying access with him and that if you're someone who just wants to talk about how to make your neighborhood better and how to avoid your school closing, you're not going to get that access even in Chicago, no less taking an international trip with him. Yeah, I was reading the the Chicago Tribune article where uh, the reporter was trying to suss out exactly who went on the trip to Asia with him and why they were there and um, some seem to be uh, just close donors and friends of Rahm Emanuel. Others seem to have, you know, real business dealings that they had to do. And it it does seem a little um, murky at times. Like there's like there's some kind of, um, I don't know, quid pro quo. There's the people who are going to get the business deals and the people who aren't. And they're, they're going to be friends of Rahm's that get the business deals. And I think this is true in... Uh, Chicago's often talked about as a public-private partnership place um, where we do a lot of public-private partnerships. And that sometimes feels um, quid pro quo-ish, too. Is that a, how do you feel about that, those kind of things, Juliana? Well, Chicago is definitely uh, sought after by cities around the world for how to engage your civic and business leadership in the quality of life of the city. Uh, and looking at Millennium Park and how it was built and invested in is just one example that you know mayors from around the world come to Chicago to study the examples. Uh, resources and funding is a challenge that every city is facing. And so trying to figure out how to partner with the other assets in your city to make those improvements is huge. Now, when I think of the delegations that travel with uh, any leadership, really, um, they, you know, it's made up of people who sit on the boards who are in positions to help influence the trajectory of an investment or a deal or an exchange. Maybe the University of Chicago and they're signing a partnership agreement on water technology in Israel, for example, which I know that they did a trip last year. So there's always um, key stakeholders at the table looking at whether it's going to be a tech innovation idea or a new research capacity and uh, looking at kind of different aspects of engaging with Chicago and signing new partnerships. Um, what about bringing corporations to the city? Rahm Emanuel uh, put an emphasis on this, was very successful at it, and it brings um, some source of revenue to the cities. Other people say, well, they get too big a break and it doesn't help the little guy. Uh, how, do you, how do you suss out something like um, corporations and whether bringing lots of corporations to the city is a good thing. And, and Rahm Emanuel says, well, you know, it, it, having a vital city infrastructure in the center of town is, is really important. And this is one of the things that does it. Well, I think, it, I mean, it's a mix. I, I don't think there's anything, you know, it seems like only positives in bringing new corporations and corporate headquarters to town. And that brings, you know, it brings new talent, it brings new people, it increases the property tax base. But it, that doesn't necessarily help the people who are struggling and, and who are in the 
uh, lower income, marginalized neighborhoods right now. So you need things to help them too. And you know, Rom has done some things like the the sick day ordinance and the minimum wage ordinance that will help those workers. And you know, he could do a lot more with policy that would affect the corporations already here, and not just the flashy corporate headquarters, but just the way chains and you know. Uh, warehousing operations and all the things that we already have, the way that they pay and treat their workers, that will presumably have, you know, also a, a big, like, trickle-up effect and really help the communities, you know, the ones that are in the news for the violence and, and the, the bad press that um, takes away from Chicago's shining global city image. So I think I feel, and, and I think a lot of civic leaders feel like he should be putting much more emphasis on that, along with bringing the corporate headquarters and the, um, the high-profile global companies. The number to call is 312-923-9239. Uh, Juliana, uh, we were just heard from Carrie Leiterson from Northwestern University, and Juliana Kerr from the Chicago Council on Global Affairs is here. And I, I do want to point out, though, on this uh, relocation of headquarters, you know, if, if metropolitan areas coming into the city can raise a lot of questions, but bringing uh, companies from overseas into the city downtown, one thing that I think was uh, really striking and, and maybe needs a little bit more play was when he had uh, Andy Zopp as the new head of World Business Chicago, which is an organization dedicated to public-private partnership, dedicated to attracting the headquarters and relocations to the city. Um, under her leadership, she was deputy mayor for community development you know under her leadership it's the neighborhood opportunity fund that they've created and looking at how those tax uh, incentives everything that comes into the downtown core then goes into there's a, a special fund that they can then allocate for reinvestment into neighborhoods and i think having her at that helm now of this traditionally you know high business oriented group is uh is very telling of kind of a new trajectory for attracting businesses and reinvesting in neighborhoods um, Carrie, do you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, that, that all makes sense. And, um, you know, that's a seems like a good development. And, and that makes me think of uh, TIFs, too, which aren't directly related to global investment. But, you know, there's just all these ways that, you know, if um, the resources within the city can be reallocated to help the neighborhoods that are struggling, which, you know, theoretically should help the whole city, should help downtown and and help, and, you know, if Chicago could really um, be a shining example of, of lessening the wealth divide and of really giving people throughout the city access to all that it has to offer, um, and I know that, you know, I know that Rahm Emanuel's administration has tried to do this in many ways and, and other groups have, um, but that's got to be one of the biggest challenges facing, maybe the biggest challenge facing all of the high-profile global cities. So I feel like if Chicago really wanted to be a leader, um, if Chicago could make progress on that front, you know, that's what would make every mayor around the world really take notice. Carrie Leiterson is author of Mayor 1% and the Rise of Chicago's 99%, and Juliana Kerr is with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. We're talking about Chicago as a global city. We're going to be back in a moment and expand the conversation and talk a little bit about uh, Puerto Rico, climate change, and other things. If you want to join the conversation, the number is 312-923-9239. 312-923-9239. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're talking about Chicago as a global city and the future of it after Rahm Emanuel as mayor. With me is Juliana Kerr, with the director of the Chicago Global or the Global Cities and Immigration at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Carrie Leiterson's on the line with us. She's co-director of the Social Justice News Nexus at Medill's uh, Northwestern University. And uh, with me now is Christina Passione and Zayas. She is co-chair of the Puerto Rican Agenda of Chicago. They have been collaborating with us on our Puerto Reconstruction series, which we've been doing every Monday. And we thought we'd just fold her right into the Global Cities conversation. And um, yeah, I think mayors get involved in so many things these days. And they, you know, we're going to talk now about climate change and immigration and Puerto Rico. Uh, Mayor Emanuel got involved in Puerto Rico, went down there after um, after the disaster, and uh, he took part. Um, how would you describe his involvement there? Yeah, um, thanks for having us, by the way. Um, I would have to say that, you know, he did exactly what we should expect elected officials to do. And that is to leverage resources and relationships, especially when there are times of crises. And so he responded to our call. Um, You know, when we got word of how devastating the impact of Hurricane Maria and the double blow of Irma before that, um, you know, we were able to really leverage the resources that he had in terms of United and being able to get a flight out five days after um, the hurricane hit and get some desperately needed emergency resources in the distribution chain. We were the first community in the Puerto Rican diaspora to do this. And I really could say that it was his relationships that helped kind of buoy this grassroots effort. Uh, And it... I noticed that the there was some involvement with he went and did a ribbon cutting at Walgreens. He did all sorts of things while he was there. How would you describe what happened while he was there? Sure. So he um, went out on official business um, and led a delegation six months after Hurricane Maria hit. I joined that delegation. Um, and so it was planned to visit several different towns. And specifically, this was through the mayoral exchange with the Open Societies Foundation. He um, actually took our cues and really went along with the towns that uh, the Puerto Rican Agenda of Chicago has adopted. That is Luisa on the eastern coast and Gomerio. And so he forged a formal um, exchange with them through this Open Societies Foundation. um, And we visited those towns. But while we were there, um, there were some really kind of critical discussions about needs in terms of infrastructure and investments. And then this trip with uh, it was in a, a, a town in between Gomerio um, and where we were coming from out of San Juan. Uh, it was, I want to say, Ay Bonito, or I can't remember right now. Point is, is that a new Walgreens, well, actually, a Walgreens reopened. It had been closed since the hurricane, and um, they had totally refurbished it. But it was amazing what happened in terms of Walgreens because they kept all their employees on payroll. And this was the first time they were able to reopen it full functioning because all they had was a mobile pharmacy in the parking lot. So he was there for the ribbon cutting with that. Um, But it was also just sort of this kind of tour to raise awareness in the profile of the work. Um, His trip really caused a new media kind of interest. um, And that really helped the uh, relief work that we were doing as well. We're going to sneak in and take a phone call here. We're talking about Chicago as a global city with Christina Passione-Zayas, co-chair of the Puerto Rican Agenda here in Chicago. And Eolin, you're on WBEZ. 
Yes, hi. This is Ellen. Ellen. Um, yes, hi. Thank Sorry you. Sorry about that. <laughs> right. Yes, um, I have to say, I think there's a hypocrisy in the way the corporate media, and even, sadly, NPR, WBC, covers Rahm Emanuel's um, economy. I, basically, there's a lot of investigations of sh- he, showing that he's privatizing, but we need more. We of this kind of investigation. You know, the, I know at Harold Washington, now Goldman Sachs has the top floor, um, and there's, it's a school of accounting. Malcolm X is a school of nursing. We're not getting critical, investigative coverage um, into Rahm Emanuel. Like, Ellen, Ellen yeah. you're mostly concerned about education there, or the privatization oh, no. aspect? He's, he's, you know, he's even claimed that he's, uh, you know, bringing private investment into Chicago, but really he's selling off Chicago, you know, to, um, you know, he closes the schools, and but basically who's who's buying them? Where's the real estate? It, it's, um, you know, it's a kind of the investments between him and Rauner. They're both were investors in the, um, with that, pipelines and you know they were investment bankers and private equity yep. together it just needs a public audit by an independent public auditor um carrie leiterson uh, what about this this is the the, the the critique that you get today yeah, I mean, that's, um, I, I, I think the media, including BZ, have actually done a lot of great investigations of uh, the Emanuel administration. So, you know, I, I have to defend the media. I think local media is doing a pretty good job, but there's always more to be done. And yeah, I think that's the big concern is, you know, what are and what were the prior, what will soon be <laughs> were before too long, um, the the priorities of the Emanuel administration and who is um, getting access and what decisions are made, why. And, um, you know, part of his, part of probably the reason he's succeeded with a lot of the the um, achievements that make Chicago, you know, a quote unquote world-class city and, and world-class has a different meaning to me than global. Um, to me, world-class sounds very much like just focusing on, you know, the, the top tier, the, the, the quote unquote high achievers in the city, um, as opposed to, but anyway, so I, um, I appreciate the, the comment. And, you know, I think that's exactly what a lot of people are concerned about, that they don't believe the administration has really been doing things with all of the residents' best interests at heart. Is there a quality that is so economic and so economically driven that it, it bleeds over into, um, something like education, where you think, well, there's an economic solution to the public schools. That that that, that your approach um, and your vision is, uh, you know, kind of a neoliberal approach to everything. You 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 see everything as uh, some sort of, um, you know, if it's an economic virtuous circle, it's 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 always economic, and instead of public policy oriented. Does that does any of that make sense? Mm-hmm. That. I feel like that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of conflict with the teachers union and Rahm Emanuel. And I know Chicago has this partnership with Mexico City and, and a lot of interaction with Mexico in general. And, you know, at least in Latin America, teachers unions um, historically and, and now are extremely powerful. So, you know, I think um, 
that's it's not a, a given that the neoliberal um, approach and that like say with education specifically that privatization is the answer. I mean, some of these global cities are social democracies where they're not privatizing education. So, you know, I feel like there'd be a lot to learn. Um, I feel like Rauner and and. Rahm Emanuel, um, I'd like to, if we're talking global cities, I'd like to see them, you know, looking harder at the models in education and, and other sectors um, that are happening and, and have worked or have involved centers of power, you know, in other, in other global cities that are different than what they're trying to do. Let's take another phone call. Steve, you're on WBEZ. Yes, thank you for taking my call. Um, just a, a, a combination um comment and question. Um, just looking at, you know, the news coverage that's been um, about Chicago and the increase in um, gun violence and violence in general, um, just wondered um, or just thought, how does that affect, you know, Chicago as a global city or the view of Chicago as a global city, looking at the increase in violence and the coverage that they've had on the news about that recently, and how do other cities and how do other world cities then look at Chicago as a um, global city, and does it affect how they view it and how investments are made in Chicago if you have, say, a, a company looking to invest, if they look at the coverage of Chicago and the violence that's been increasing or the you know, number of deaths you know, and other you know, crimes that have com- been committed, how does it affect other companies' views of Chicago as a city and how does it affect you know investment in Chicago? You know, it's interesting. President Trump uh, always brings up Chicago as this crime-ridden place. It almost seems to be a political battle uh, that you're trying to depict Chicago as a bad place because it's a it's a place where your political opponents are. Um, so it um, there's a funny thing that goes on with the the, the violence and the reputation thing. Uh, Juliana, do you have some thoughts about that? Uh, yeah, the you know the the violence in Chicago is um, obviously horrific and and needs to be addressed. Uh, there are lots of organizations, um, both neighborhood organizations, the University of Chicago's Crime Lab, the City of Chicago itself, looking at long term strategies of how to reduce the the homicide rate. Um, these are you know there's no silver bullet. That's the first thing that they always say, but. Thinking of Chicago as an urban laboratory where cities come together and address real problems and and come up with real solutions and exchanging ideas, um, that's where I think that the global city factor really is is an important piece of the the Chicago's engagement with the world, working with cities like Cali and Colombia or Rio de Janeiro and Brazil and saying, what what have you been doing? You know, what's working in your city? And um, and trying to figure out which, you know, what context works, what uh, interventions work and where to make those most strategic investments. Um, these are these are long-term goals. And whether or not it you know affects companies, I mean the data, you know, it's it's certain neighborhoods. Um, most of the companies are still interested in the quality of life factors that Chicago offers, you know, kind of the big picture of the city. And um, when they're trying to attract talent and and the, the people who want to work in these places, um, Chicago really does thrive on all of these other metrics and indicators of cultural vibrancy and the restaurant scene and um, the public transportation system, which compared to European standards is, you know, <laughs> probably not as uh, on par, but compared to other American cities, I mean, it's a really advanced uh, public transportation. So there's a lot of other quality of life factors that attract um, investments to the city. Um, Christina Passione-Zayas from the Puerto Rican Agenda. Um, how do you react to 
things from a community level because um, in places like Humboldt Park, there's a lot of issues about gentrification and um, uh, there's community issues that are like beyond violence. Um, how do you think about what goes on in your community and how the changes are? Yeah, I think in uh, Humboldt Park, you know, we're the Puerto Rican community in Humboldt Park is the largest community outside of the East Coast Puerto Rican community that is. And there has been this type of work in terms of countering gentrification and ensuring that there is high quality neighborhood schools and uh, public safety and youth leadership development and safe places for LGBTQ uh, members of our community, that's been going on for over 40 years. It's been um, in effect through a lot of the uh, community-based organizations and the, the various initiatives that sprout from that. And so uh, we've been looking at these issues for, like I say, decades and really have done it in a very organic way and really have built around indigenous leadership so that um, the solutions are really generating from those most affected instead of top down. But again, we understand that we can do this work, but it's also important to leverage it um, through relationships with our elected officials. And so in some ways, we do have to interface and and figure out ways that we can uh, get additional resources and supports to be able to take some of our smaller scale projects to scale across the community. Um, We've done a lot of work around community as a campus, which is a Cradle to Career Initiative in Humble Park, looking at uh, birth to five services all the way to uh, college and career. And that has all been generated from the community and really um, wraparound services of our social service agencies. So, I mean, we've done a lot of work around these issues and see uh, opportunity in which we can expand and opportunity in which we can continue to build upon. Let's try to sneak another phone call in. Uh, Michelle, you're on WBEZ. Oh, yes, thank you very much. Um, I am faculty at the UIC School of Public Health. Let me turn my radio down here, sorry. And actually, um, Christina and I know each other. I did want to bring up the issue of the Discovery Discovery Partners Institute that the university with the mayor and governor are planning, and it's supposed to do the very thing we're talking about here. That is to bring business partnerships with science, uh, and university partnerships to improve the quality of life and health of our communities as well as around the world. So I guess I'm thinking perhaps the University of Puerto Rico could be a partner here, and that would be one way to build the infrastructure in ways that Puerto Rico finds useful to improve their health. Do you have some thoughts about that, Chris? Yeah, no. Hey, Michelle, how are you? Good to hear your voice. Um, absolutely. I mean, we've been, the Puerto Rican Agenda of Chicago has been looking at a lot of the relief work. We have a campaign called Three R's for PR. So it's Rescue, Relief, Rebuild. Um, we're in the rebuild phase um, where we're looking at sustainable energy. We're looking at um, very innovative cultural exchanges, um, knowledge exchanges, in which we can support um, rebuilding the institutions of Puerto Rico. We don't want to continue the brain drain in Puerto Rico, but we want to leverage um, the innate talent uh, on the island as well as here in our community and really be um, intentional about how we are supporting those efforts um, to to really bring Puerto Rico into the 21st century so that it can be self-determined. 
We're talking about uh, Chicago as a global city and taking a few phone calls at 312-923-9239. And uh, Carrie Leiterson, uh, do you have some thoughts about community development and the kind of things that uh, we were hearing yeah, from Christina? Yeah, you know, I feel like the last two answers by Juliana and Christina um, really resonated with me and to me kind of summed up this whole discussion mm-hmm. because with the crime, I mean, um, you know, what Juliana was mentioning just kind of underscores what a big divide we do have in Chicago where these global companies coming in, you know, it's highly unlikely that talent that they're bringing in would um, live in the neighborhoods where gun violence is bad or ever be affected by the gun violence. And, you know, you look at cities like Cali and Rio where that's even more the case. And, you know, there they go to great lengths to keep the poor people away from the um, people with more resources and, you know, their economies kind of depend on um, that internal, uh, you know, sort of militarization. So, you know, we certainly never want to get to that point in Chicago. And ideally, um, so then getting to Christina's answer, I mean, I think Humboldt Park is a perfect example of how a community that, um, you know, has over the years um, struggled, had many residents who are struggling economically and has had its share of violence, Um, how really amazing community organizing has just done so much to help people stay in the community and benefit from the, um, you know, investment and from increasing political power. And, you know, I think that's a perfect model for how ideally we could bring the neighborhoods together and and have everyone um, benefit from, you know, this investment and these great amenities that are happening. Carrie Leiterson is co-director of the Social Justice News Nexus, a fellowship program at Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern. She's also the author of Mayor 1% and the Rise of Chicago's 99%. Thanks for joining us, Carrie. And thanks for joining us, Juliana Kerr, director of the Chicago Global Cities and Immigration Project at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. You can look up their report on Chicago Global Strategy, and uh, they've been working on it for several years. Good to see you, Juliana. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. And Christina Pasiones is uh, Zayas is the co-chair of the Puerto Rican Agenda of Chicago, and we've been collaborating with them on our Puerto Reconstruction series. Good to see you and have you in the studio, Christina. Thank you. Appreciate it. Coming up after the break, we're going to be talking about the ICC, the International Criminal Court, and the moves that John Bolton wants to make against it. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The National Security Advisor of the United States, John Bolton, has said the International Criminal Court is dangerous in his latest speech. It's taking place today at the Federalist Society. And he said that um, the court statute had glaring and significant flaws and constituted an assault on the constitutional rights of the American people and the sovereignty of the United States. And we have a clip of the question and answer session with uh, Mr. Bolton at the Federalist Society. Some of your critics, perhaps outside this room, might say this is typical of the Trump administration's skepticism about multilateral, multinational organizations, and this is just another example. I wonder if, given the chance, how would you articulate a conservative vision, I've heard you do this before, of multinational organizations that do respect sovereignty, and what do those look like? Well, I think 
collective defense organizations like NATO are an excellent example of, a, of an international organization uh, that advances American interests, is consistent with American sovereignty, and strengthens America and its allies around the world. The difference uh, is that there are some institutions, some treaties, that purport to create authorities and institutions outside of, beyond, above the Constitution that put themselves in a kind of continuing revision uh, outside the power of the Senate and the executive branch. Uh, I think that's particularly true of treaties that create judicial institutions. But many, many treaties uh, that we see have conventions of state parties. They get together every five years. They pass declarations. They're, in effect, reinterpreting the treaties, putting new obligations on states' parties. Those never come back to the Senate for ratification. Uh, and I think this is something that, frankly, deserves more attention in the Senate than it gets. There are some institutions, the European Union in particular, that are founded on the notion that the nation-state was a failure. And uh, to create institutions above the nation-state, that's what they've been in the process of doing. God bless them. It's their democratic choice to do it if that's what they want. And God bless the people of Great Britain who two years ago voted to get out of the European Union. That's National Security Advisor John Bolton at the Federalist Society talking about the International Criminal Court and Brexit and everything else. And with us is Richard Dicker. He is the Director of International Justice Programs at Human Rights Watch. Uh, thanks for joining us, Richard Dicker. Very glad to be with you. Uh, I think most people know that John Bolton has a history of opposing the International Criminal Court. Um, but could you illuminate a little bit what his um standing has been on this traditionally? Yeah. Uh, Mr. Bolton, um, uh, his opposition goes back to 2002 uh, in the early years of the George W. Bush administration. And, and Mr. Bolton, at that point, when the International Criminal Court was first uh created and starting to get up and running, really uh, launched a jihad uh, against the court on ideological grounds. Uh, and you could glean that from the comments we just heard this morning of opining on the European Union and, and Brexit. Um, he opposed the ICC, even though the prior uh, administration had uh, signed the treaty, the Clinton administration had signed the treaty uh, on a hodgepodge of contrived views reflecting an American exceptionalism to international law, that uh, there were violations of constitutional rights for U.S. citizens. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, one final word on that. Uh, after Mr. Bolton's uh, crusade engendered so much uh, pushback from U.S. allies around the world uh, in 2005, uh, the Bush administration wisely uh, gave up its efforts against the court. Now, the U.S. is not a signatory to the ICC treaty. Uh, it withdrew its signature. 
Well, uh, Mr. Bolton, back in May of 2002, signed a letter to the then Secretary General of the United Nations saying that he was withdrawing the signature uh, that had been placed by the Clinton administration. Uh, Mr. Bolton characterized that as the proudest day of his professional life. Uh, whether the letter of May 7, 2002 had the desired legal effect, um, uh, reasonable people can debate. Um, but uh, essentially, the U.S. is not a party. In other words, the U.S. has not ratified the treaty, uh, making it a member state. I'm talking with Richard Dicker, Director of International Justice Programs at Human Rights Watch, about John Bolton and the International Criminal Court. The U.S. is uh, taking a position against the International Criminal Court. They, John Bolton said today that the United States will use any means necessary to protect our citizens and those of our allies from unjust pr- prosecution by this illegitimate court. Um, and he's talking here about... Um, possible uh, torture for uh, detainees in Afghanistan that was done by the U.S. Armed Forces. He's talking about uh, Israel and uh, some of uh, Israel's recent actions. Uh, he, he says there are things that are illegitimate that should not be looked into by the court. Well, I think, you know, first and foremost, Mr. Bolton's threats show the utter callous regard for victims of atrocity crimes around the world. Uh, The slaughter uh, of of civilians in Syria, in Myanmar, uh, elsewhere, in fact demonstrates, contrary to Mr. Bolton's pronouncements, that the ICC is needed more than ever to act as uh, uh, a deterrent, to act uh, as uh, a responsible court of law, to hold responsible those who commit these kinds of atrocities. I think Mr. Bolton's comments today uh, are uh, stunning and shameful. Is the you if the U.S. goes ahead and starts um, sanctioning the ICC judges if they um, proceed with investigations? What kind of precedent is that? What uh, who who else does that? Yeah, that is such an important point, and thank you for raising it. Uh, what uh, universe is Mister Bolton? Uh, functioning in is the question I have hearing some of his remarks. Indeed, um, what country does sanction uh, prosecutors, investigators, judges trying to bring relief to victims of these mass atrocity crimes? I mean, it's, it is Shameful, as I said before, that the National Security Council advisor of the United States is making these kinds of outrageous and offensive claims. I am not aware of any uh, government that 
uh, threatens to wield its power in the way Mr. Bolton is. And I am confident uh, this is going to come back uh, as a, a, another ball he picked up to drop on his feet. It seems like a lot of this is connected to Israel and the International Criminal Court. Uh, how uh, how much protection does Israel need from the International Criminal Court? Well, first off, the International Criminal Court was created in uh, a negotiation that went on four years that involved 150 governments, including the United States government, um, that played a very active role. The result is many safeguards against political uh, use of this court's machinery are implanted into the structure. There are numerous safeguards that preclude this uh, court operating on a political basis or motivation. Uh, So bottom line, I think the safeguards exist uh, already inherent in the court uh, treaty or statute. Most importantly, that if the national authorities investigate and prosecute the crimes alleged, there is no role for the International Criminal Court because it it was designed as a court of last resort. Um, We've just got a a minute, less than a minute left, but John Bolton today said that the court and its central aim was uh, to constrain the United States. That's that's the whole meaning of the court. Yeah, well, uh, I think that speaks volumes about Mr. Bolton's uh, grasp of the world and what happens in the world. I would need only cite uh, the experience of the Rohingya people in Myanmar or uh, civilians in Syria, uh, civilians in South Sudan. Uh, That is a uh, a stark rebuke to uh, Mr. Bolton's uh, uh, comment and broader view that we heard today. Richard Dicker is director of the International Justice Program at Human Rights Watch. Thanks for joining us and talking about the U.S. position on the international criminal courts. Tomorrow on Worldview, hope you can join us. We'll be talking about the International Peace Day celebrations that are coming up and some folks that are celebrating International Peace Week. Join us tomorrow for Worldview. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.